how salesy is too salesy? Salesy is too salesy. You don't want to be yeah. salesy. Nobody wants to be salesy. I think that's something we we want to sort of uh, uh, eliminate from uh, from the world. I think uh, uh, sales has a bad reputation because of uh, you know people in the past who have been salesy. So a lot of people. I mean, I'm one of those people who uh, who when sales came up, I would think that sales was a dirty word and uh, and sort of picture you know some sort of the the typical Hollywood movie of you know used car salesman type uh, character. And yes, we don't want to be that. Instead, if we go back to on both sides, again, marketing, sales, whatever you're doing, everything that you're producing as a company, everything you're doing with customers, in some sense should be customer service. Hey there, I took a few weeks off to build a hotel at Burning Man. But fortunately, we had recorded a few pods before I left. As I work on getting all of the dust off of my stuff, I'm excited for you to listen to my conversation with Dan McDermott, CMO of Boris. Folks at Voris specialize in helping startups build high-performing B2B sales teams. In our chat, he shares what the biggest trap is that founders often fall into when building sales teams, his philosophy on building a culture of collaboration, why developing repeated processes is so important, and how to avoid internal team competition. Chatting with Dan was like doing a deep dive into the right and wrong way of building sales teams. It was super fun to learn from him, and I'm very grateful to him for spending the time with me. On a side note, Dan and Voris founder Kyle host the Startup Growth Podcast that's packed full of strategies and tips on how to build out great sales teams. Check out their podcast and connect with Dan and Kyle if you need help. They are both experts in what they do. I'll be releasing my guest appearance on the Startup Growth Podcast later this month, so stay tuned for that. All right. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Appreciate you spending the time. Yeah, absolutely, Nima. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. So I'm super excited about this because the main reason I wanted to chat with you all uh, at Voris was to learn more about sales. Yeah, I think my general job is to be very, very good at a different form of user acquisition and customer acquisition, which is sort of marketing and, and paid performance. But our own company runs on sales. <laughs> so uh, it's something I've personally been doing for the company. And recently, we've hired a head of sales who's been taking over. Um, and I'm very curious to look at, first of all, generally sales-led growth um, and what it takes to run a very strong sales team. And it sounds like you guys have done that plenty of different times for other, other companies, which in itself is probably one of those um, forms of mastery that, that um, ends up making you better at it than an internal team. Uh, and that's how we feel about performance marketing. We feel like we're better than internal teams because that's all we do. I mean, that's definitely the case. I mean, I totally agree with you there. It's, it's something where if you just, it's one of those things, it's easy to have an idea and know about something, but once you've run through it over and over again, you see the problems, you see the, the sort of the issues pop up and you uh, figure out good ways to handle healthy processes. You know where things are a one size fits all solution and when they're not. And uh, I think that eventually you also start to collecting people around you that are very good at what they do, where you can kind of bring in the right specialist at the right time. Uh, so yes, we feel like we've uh, we've kind of cracked the code there a little bit. But um, it's also it's funny you mentioned that sales and marketing are so vital to pretty much any business. So if you're not doing both, you're probably not doing something right. Yeah, there there's certainly like some forms of businesses that believe they're product like growth companies, but even those companies end up getting enterprise customers knocking on their door saying. Yep. 
can we talk to a salesperson, please? Um, this I, I had the, the one of the co-founders of Webflow on the podcast a few rounds ago, and he was saying they had to build a sales team because of that, because they had enough enterprise clients saying, we want to pay more, we want SLAs, we want all of this stuff. Why can't we do that? And then he, they decided that, I guess we need a sales staff. Um, and even this is at like many multiple millions of AR already. Um, but that's when they start realizing, oh, they could make a lot more money. Um, and then revenue retention just ballooned after that because they were able to have a direct relationship with, with all, their, all their users that were willing to pay more, you know? Yeah, for sure. No, that happens all the time, actually. There's many examples of, of I mean, first of all, look, I mean, I, I feel like I'm pretty open and gentle when it comes to this kind of stuff. I feel like, you know, hey, whatever labels you want to put on it, it's fine. But some people get very tribalistic about, you know, no, we're, we're with this type of company and that's it and nothing else is allowed and everybody else is wrong. And I think it's just, you know, it's more of there is usually something to be done now that will help your company grow in some form, mm -hmm. in some capacity. And if you don't limit yourself to, again, these these labels and whatnot, you're uh, liable to find something you know that is very, very good for you at that moment. So much of it is about timing, basically, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, timing, the market, the product. Um, and it's difficult to say that you know it's always going to be just this one, you know, one, two, three, always, forever. Yeah. And, and on that note, I guess like this is a good area to start is when do you think it's a good time for people to not be doing sales without the founders being involved, right? I, uh, at least for us, it took me two and a half years mm -hmm. to, to start working with exter anyone external, well, maybe two years, to anyone external, two and a half years um, where we were like, okay, we need to hire someone that's not just me um, doing the pitching and, and even doing sort of like outbound sales or lead gen. Um, when do you recommend? Because maybe I was, I, I feel like I was wrong now that we've hired a sales a head of salesperson. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, when do you think it's a good time? And I'd love to hear also like, what is the mix of companies that you think would need it? Like are the SMB salespeople should hire uh, internal sales folks or is it only enterprise, is it mid-market? Uh, you know, is there a framework essentially in your mind? Actually, before I answer, let me flip it back to you for a second. Why did you choose to, what was the trigger for you to go and say, okay, now I, I need to hire somebody to, to do this? That's a good question. So it's basically effectively, we needed more sales that I thought I could personally handle in terms yep. of, I was maxing out the number of hours per week that I was able to go on pitch calls. Um, and I was getting close to that. And we had some like top level goals for this year that I was like, well, if I, if we, if we want to get that, we need just literally, we need more hours in a day. Um, and it's not like I can work harder because there was a, there's yep. a certain number of hours that other people are willing to go on calls with me. Uh, it's just, I'm limited by my calendar, um, which is actually beautiful because then I can model out what another person could do theoretically. Um, and I think David Sachs has that great post on, um, what multiples to use and uh, on different a like AEs versus SDRs and all this sort of stuff that I use to then model out what it would be like to hire a team. Yeah. So, I mean, th that's one of the most common stories that, that we interact with is that basically it's a company that's doing something right. They're getting some traction there. You know, there's some product market fit there, but the inevitable kind of trap is that the founder, if it's a founder led sales uh, kind of operation, the founder then runs out of time. The founder also has, you know, a job to be doing as founder, as CEO, as, you know, in there's many other things to be done there outside of, you know, pick up the phone and dialing and, and selling. So many of the people who come to us basically are in that trap and they're doing a lot of great stuff, but they're hitting that limit 
in terms of time, in terms of energy, and then also just in terms of, hey, it is the right time to scale. Uh, maybe they've recently gotten funding. Maybe you know some trigger event has happened to sort of say like, this is really the time for us to, to, be, to be acting. And um, we're there to help create the processes to move from being you know, a sort of ad hoc uh, sales org to an actual uh, formal uh, structured sales organization that where we have repeatable processes so that you can scale with them. Um, and then you also asked, you know, what was there a size, uh, you know, issue or what other triggers are there uh, for us to say now's the time to have a sales team? And um, I would go back to sort of uh, what we said before is if you are running into your 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 limits as a founder, if you're uh, if you have specific revenue targets that you feel like you cannot hit otherwise, uh, really at any size company, any size organization, that's the time that you should be building your first sales org. And um, what we like to do is often we'll ask, you know, the company that we go to sort of say, okay, what is your revenue target? Because most most people have some sort of target in mind, uh, whether or not they have an organization to fulfill that target, right? And then we can sort of go backwards from there and say, okay, in order to hit this, res this, uh, this revenue target, let's model out backwards uh, the, the types of numbers that we need to hit for uh, different types of teams. And we do recommend starting with, you know, for example, a couple of SDRs. And if, if it's the right kind of organization with a bigger market, uh, a couple of AEs. And uh, yes, there are ratios for that. There's, uh, and you can go in, you know, quite deep into that in terms of the modeling out of the numbers. And we do before we work with anybody. And do you also model out, like, do you ask them what their ACV is and, and for others don't know, like average customer value is uh, or annual customer value. So then you know that the thing is going to be prof profitable. So you, you basically get in there immediately and say, well, this is not going to work out if, if it's low enough or. Yeah. So part, part of the part of the reason we do that up front is to, number one, just see if it's going to be a good fit for us, um, but also try to give the the people, you know, sometimes people set revenue targets that are that are kind of a little bit crazy um, that are just too high. And then sometimes they're setting revenue targets that are potentially very, very low. And by just coming to us, you can just get, you know, basically free call and we just go through a, a little bit of a roadmap with you to sort of say like, look, um, this is a realistic number. And in order to get there, here's uh, here's basically the next six months, 12 months of, uh, of your sales team. Hire these people first, then hire these people, then hire these people. Is there some like ratio that you've seen work in terms of like the cost in which it would take you to run the sales team to um, the annual customer value that you need in order for a sales team to work? You know, uh, you know, in marketing, you have the, it's antiquated, but generally speaking, people still think about it, which is a 30% rule, the third, you know, one third rule of, hey, your CAC to LTV ratio should be one to three. Um, and generally speaking, when you have that, your business will work. The answer is like, sometimes that's true, but it turns out to be wrong in a lot of these different instances based on your business model. But, uh, you know, most marketers kind of like hold that to heart. Is there some like heuristic where a founder can think of like, should I be more of a marketing organization or a sales organization that you can like easily look at a company and say, well, this is just not going to be a right fit in terms of building a very large sales team and like one of the main sources of growth. So one of the things that I think many people miss when they are trying to model out numbers, let's just uh, stay focused on the sales team specifically uh, up front, is that they will not take into account all the actual costs that exist when you're looking at, you know, basically the ROI on somebody. Where, you know, if um, if I'm going to pay out somebody on commission, then that's going to factor in a certain amount, right? And then if they're if I'm also paying out 
um, you know, commission to multiple people. If there's an SDR involved, an AE involved, you know, maybe there's something else in there too. Um, the numbers very easily get mixed up where you suddenly have uh, you have a sale, but it's a sale that's not profitable, and that's obviously very counterproductive to the entire uh, the entire enterprise here, right? Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that we do, yes, we we go and model the numbers in uh, to be specific enough so that you know that this type of a hiring plan and a growth plan is actually going to remain profitable because we go in and we will set compensation, we will set commission structures, we will set all that stuff so that it protects the profitability of a sale. Um, and I think that's that's an important blind spot that many people don't realize is is, is a real issue. Uh, it comes up quite a bit. Um, in terms of a a ratio between marketing and sales and how to know whether to choose one or the other, um, I don't think we've come into a situation where we've ever suggested choosing sales over marketing. Uh, usually there's some sort of marketing function, either if, with a dedicated team or person. Um, many of the companies we work with are, are quite early on, so mm-hmm. it's often somebody wearing a bunch of different hats. But we never say that sales should replace the marketing function completely. Um, instead, we just say, okay, you have an inbound channel, for example, and that's great. Keep on doing that. We hope that you have a great blog and a great website and a great you know sort of strategy to reach people for sure. But then uh, let's also build this out as a function to convert um, and to uh, to convert people from you know cold traffic and uh, and just reaching out uh, to people who we think would be great fits. So it's it's quite a different function, and I don't think one should replace the other. And we we've never kind of lined them up to uh, to sort of compete directly, where it's you know put fifty percent mm-hmm. of your budget here and fifty percent of your budget here. Instead, it's like, okay, let's estimate out the costs of what this would be based on your target and build that in a silo effectively. And then once the team is built, we don't have to keep the team in a silo completely, but we we sort of separate the two out. Is that uh, yeah. fair? That generally makes sense. And I think if I were a founder, I'd probably do some like mix analysis of like, if I were to spend the next dollar, where should it go? Should it go to more sales staff or and sales versus marketing? And and maybe my mind goes there because I'm a performance marketer and it's literally how I think, right? Where should the next dollar go? And it's a channel mix problem. Um, but then why isn't the sales channel just part of that same conversation or same thought process? Because then you can run incrementality tests and things like that. Um, there's probably, a, a, oh, maybe this is a better question to ask. I was going to assume this, but is are there diminishing returns on more salespeople? Like if you're, you know, if, if tomorrow you say, I want to spend a hundred, you know, five more million dollars on, on the sales staff. Um, is that the equivalent to the first $5 million I spent on it? Or is there, are there diminishing returns? Uh, there are diminishing returns. And the, um, I don't think they, they show up for a while necessarily, but depending on the size of your market, um, you can quite quickly tap the, uh, you know, your, your primo targets. And if you start to do that and you will eventually sort of, you know, kind of cycle down from, you know, A plus leads down to, you know, uh, weaker and weaker, Outreach. Um, so yes, eventually there's there's that challenge to be faced in terms of having. Uh, I mean, you see this all the time. Where you know, look at the the layoffs that we're currently sort of facing in the tech world. Uh, I mean, a lot of that is people hiring too many people potentially. You know, maybe not expecting the the economic downturn, and then what happens is you suddenly have a bloated team that you're paying a lot of money for, but then you know a market that is not receptive. And I think that's that's not quite diminishing returns in that sense. It's it's a mis- mismatched uh, solution for yeah, what you have going on. Both of those sound like market saturation. Like the market is not accepting it at the volume in which you are trying to accept, you're trying to acquire the customers. Yes, that's correct. 
Yeah. And it's super similar, I guess, to paid marketing of like, <clears throat> there are diminishing returns because you're basically maxing out the impressions that you could possibly get on the people that are willing to buy your product right now. So then you're doing these longer term sort of things. So uh, I guess another question around that area is that it, are there like approaches to warming leads up? Because there is like the tier one folks that are maybe in market right now that are willing to buy, right? I would imagine there is like some adoption curve um, on the market. It's very similar to paid marketing. We talk about this and there is like 5% of the market is willing to click right now and buy right now. So your first like, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of ad spend are probably going to go towards that part of the market and they're just ready now. And then you have to do all this work to warm up the rest. And it's like a more of a branding problem, but then it can become a performance marketing problem. Do you do any of that work yourself as, as, as the sales lead, or do you think that's the marketing team's job to slowly warm up those people? So then they're in the periphery. And when you reach out to them, eventually um, with an SDR team, they are more receptive. Like how does that play in together? Again, great question. And uh, yes, you're, you're hitting on one of the topics that a lot of people like to get very, uh, very frustrated about. So I, I, <laughs> I will hit that for sure. Um, as purely on the sales side, uh, there is a level of warming up in the sense of you're sending out, you know, you're, we're making cold calls, you're sending out cold emails. Um, I'm going to assume that people maybe do not act on the first on the first uh, the first touch. Uh, the first touch is the most important one. But let's say that they don't act there. If you are following up with the sort of spammy stuff where you're just kind of hammering people with a sale, that's never going to work. So we have borrowed quite a bit from the wider world of, I think this is sales in general, actually, but you know, um, value first marketing, uh, there's, there's an element of that too in here where we want to lead with um, things that are easy to read, things that are actually very hyper relevant to what the prospect is probably thinking about. We do a lot of work uh, at Forest with messaging and sort of prepping a lot. You would recognize a lot of the same things from marketing where, you know, we go through persona building, we go through, you know, the the problems, the impacts, the the pains. Um, again, I'm a former copywriter, so this is very much my uh, my shtick. Um, so there is a, a, a level of warming up, I would argue, in any campaign that we send out or in any sort of multiple touch, uh, you know, interaction, whether it's on the phone or email or LinkedIn. So it's a tiny one compared to the marketing side, but it's there. Uh, now, in terms of how to interact with a list that is being warmed up by the marketing team, that's a great question. This goes back very much to how the brand wants to be perceived and how how careful you are about the relationships you, you build out with people. We, on the Vora side, for literally for, for our company, we are very much big believers in if somebody downloads a lead magnet, we better call them. And uh, our lead magnets are geared towards founders. And a lot of, we, we know the ones that are sort of uh, intent, high intent uh, ones to, to, to focus on. And we will call that lead directly immediately, as quickly as possible. And that's something that we do as a, very much as a sales work. And we were, we're happy to do that. We, we know that there's other organizations that don't do that, that are very protective of, of their leads and want to do a much slower sort of nurture process. And you've got to know how, what your, what your, who your buyer is and what they expect and what they, you know, what they need. So I think that when it comes to how you're using the marketing team, I think the two sides should be talking to get together quite a bit. And I think there should be a lot of interaction between the two, but in choosing how quickly, for example, to jump on a marketing lead or when to send a marketing lead, you know, to, from an MQL to basically to become an SQL. And um, you've got to do a lot of careful strategy with the leadership of the company to make sure that it is, everybody is happy to be on brand here. So it's a little bit, you know, we will match where that, where the company wants to be, but it's, uh, it's again, one of these things going back to something I said earlier, 
being tribalistic about saying this is you've got to always call directly every time. That's not true for every company. But if you're, you know, in our position, uh, it definitely works well. And um, yeah, I think it really depends on, on where you're at and how aggressive you want to be with your sale. And then also um, how how uh, positively the two sides work together internally. Uh, some companies really have a huge split and they never speak to each other between marketing and sales. Whereas the companies that we've seen with, be most successful, the two sides are consistently in the same kind of uh, the same room, uh, speaking together quite a bit and sort of saying, hey, we just came out with this thing. We think this is going to be an excellent lead magnet and it is high intent, for example, in, in, in the buying cycle. Great. Okay, let's let's go with this. And other times, hey, why are you calling people that are just downloading this kind of stuff? Or why are you why are you calling people who are on a welcome autoresponder, right? Yeah, I was going to ask you if there was like a virtuous path. And it seems like it's like the super collaborative model is the virtuous path of like, uh, okay, maybe I'll ask you another question, maybe less virtuous, but what is the long term greedy strategy? Like what is the one that works over a longer period of time as opposed to like, Maybe we'll hit the goals this quarter, but if we do this for 10 years, it's not going to work. Like, um, do, do you know what I mean? Like how, how salesy is too salesy? What is the balance in your mind? <laughs> salesy is too salesy. You don't want to be yeah. salesy. Nobody wants to be salesy. I think that's something we, we want to sort of uh, uh, eliminate from, uh, from the world. I think uh, uh, sales has a bad reputation because of uh, you know, people in the past who have been salesy. So a lot of people, I mean, I'm one of those people who, uh, who when sales came up, I would think that sales was a dirty word and, uh, and sort of picture, you know, some sort of the, the typical Hollywood movie of, you know, used car salesman type uh, character. And yes, we don't want to be that. Um, instead, if we go back to on both sides, so again, marketing sales, whatever you're doing, everything that you're producing as a company, everything you're doing with customers, in some sense should be customer service. It should be something where you're you're ethically speaking to people. If somebody says no, back off. By all means, sure thing. Um, I used to have a restaurant, and uh, it, it's very much <laughs> working digitally. It's very easy to lose the human connection because it's kind of numbers on a screen or you know a, a faceless email. But uh, even a phone call is is it's more personal, but it's not quite the same thing. Whereas at, in the restaurant world, everybody on the team was there to make the customers, uh, the diners, you know, feel at home and welcome. And I think that's an ethos that I think a lot of organizations should start to adopt and say, look, yes, there are ways to handle everything. And we should be very, very receptive to what the market really wants ultimately and to really genuinely help people always, always. Uh, and if we do a good job with, this is why the sales team, I think, should always also be talking to marketing and marketing should want the sales team talking to them is SDRs are often the people who have the most interaction with customers where they're speaking directly. They're sort of, they're your feedback loop. And if you can sort of listen to SDRs who have their heads screwed on right, have some experience there and sort of are listening to customers and saying, guys, what are we doing here? Every time I say this thing, you know, it lights people up the wrong way. And why are we doing this? Great. That's great information. Let's drop it. Let's lean into the strengths instead. But when we have these feedback loops and we have a genuine, uh, this sounds a little bit cheesy, but I don't think it is. I think it's real. Uh, a genuine passion to solve problems for people, then we can create the entire system to be hopefully never salesy and always helpful. Um, pipe dream maybe, but but it's a good one. This obviously makes sense to me. And, and generally speaking, I also believe it on the engineering side as well, where I think it happens a lot in engineering orgs where they're disconnected from the user. Um, so I, I encourage our engineers to be on calls with 
customers to get an understanding of what's going on. It's not just the PMs, right? Um, of like, hey, here's the problems we're solving. Here's where we're bothering people. And we're, we're being like a net negative force. Um, can you actually, so you, we, we've, I'm, I'm realizing we've used some acronyms. Let's actually talk about what a sales team looks like. What is an SDR? What is an AE? Uh, what are their respective jobs in your opinion? Can I just add one quick thing to the last thing we talked about? The, yeah, uh, the last absolutely. point, real quick. Sorry, but I, I think that uh, a lot of a lot of times when we speak about sales or marketing teams or even even uh, company growth, uh, we look at a lot of milestones and just sort of look at the results and not the the processes in a sense. Where you know, I, I think you'd agree with me. Processes are the more important one to look at. But it, I think one of the ways we try to look at things is as this uh, consistent human capital growth, where you're really training your team to be better. And by creating a lot of these feedback loops and collaborating on messaging together as a team, um, mm -hmm. get, you know, get the CEO to come down and write something, get an SDR to come in and write something. Where are they, where are they completely off? Where are they together? This iterative uh, process of every week, are we getting 1% better is something where I think that's where the true um, improvement comes. So, and I think that's where you ultimately become better at serving your your customers. Uh, so sorry, they just wanted to, to, to close off on that. I was gonna bring you back to this part of mastery. So let's let's get to that right after, but just to like define the, the terms we've been talking about. Um, yeah, just quickly walk us through, what is an SDR, what is an AE? Is that the only two roles that you should care about? Are there more? An SDR is a sales development representative and it's um, it's a position where uh, they are the people doing the cold calls. They are the people doing the prospecting. So cold calls, cold emails, cold LinkedIn, it's often an SDR who's reaching out to you. Um, an AE is somebody who is an account executive and they're the person who is you know, doing the demo uh, and essentially closing the, closing the deal, making the sale. Um, and then there's also on the team often a sales manager and uh, sometimes a VP of sales. And depending on the team, your leadership might uh, look a little bit different in there. Um, mm -hmm. So there are also uh, SDR managers, uh, uh, sometimes there are sales coaches who are also involved, but for the most part, it's it's SDRs, AEs, sales manager, VP, and uh, then company leadership. And do these SDRs report to the sales manager? Do they report to the AEs? Is there a mix? This is very different across the board for different companies. So often, since we're building the first team, we will uh, the first couple of people that we bring in are often uh, you know a couple of SDRs, uh, you know two SDRs and one AE, for example. And uh, at that point, there is no sales manager often. And if that if that's the case, then they report to uh, to us, and then um, also to their company leadership directly. Once a sales manager is put in place, they are the person that they report to. Oh, interesting. So, an AE is still an individual contributor in in, in your model, um, where there's a sales manager. Yes, and sometimes an AE is a full a full cycle uh, salesperson, where they are doing the prospecting and the closing, depending on on the nature of the team. And how do you fit in? organizationally, and maybe you don't do this, I'm curious when, when there are like more technical products where you need sort of like a sales engineer. Um, if you were to design the org, I guess, how do you think about it on your end and versus if there was an internal team, internal sales team, how would you organize people? That's, that's interesting. I think the, um, the idea of simplifying your messaging down to a point where it's easy for anybody on the team to sell your your product. Let's let's put it that way. So I think that I think that's the responsibility of people like us, but also the company leadership, uh, essentially to have something where we have um, a message that is easy to understand by our by our our, um, our customers, our prospects, and is simple enough to communicate by the people who we hire. 
And I think that that's where, you know, if you have something more technical, by all means, maybe the AE has the uh, the uh, sort of um, the the experience needed to to walk through, you know, exactly how the product works. Um, that's usually saved for a demo, I think, best, and where you have, you know, more direct communication. But I think every person on the team should be able to handle at least the basics of how something works and how, um, you know, how a problem is solved by what we do. Yeah, I think I generally agree with you. There's probably a, a subset of the market that are like selling dev tools that that just doesn't work with because they're speaking to like a CTO who is asking you about does your API support X, Y, and Z? And can you show me a demo that you use that API? And I've just seen it work where like I think Datadog does this, for instance, where there are sales engineers within like a trio of an AESDR sales engineer and they work together to like build demos quickly. The engineer will go and put up like an example of the product being used for that specific use case because uh, they're all like API companies. So there is no interface, right? So in order to do that. So um, it seems like it works to some extent when at least in those types of instances. Um, but maybe you're right in that if they had done their jobs very well, the AE would be able to do it without. For the most part, when an SDR makes a cold call to somebody in a, in a two to five minute conversation with somebody, can they hold their own with enough technical knowledge to to sort of surpass uh, you know expectations? And and I think the answer is that should be the case. Um, you know, most when I was selling uh, solar products, I definitely did not have the technical know how to give it necessarily like a scientific presentation, but um, I knew my product i knew the competing products i knew the general you know the you know the very simple one two three of how they worked and um and i knew the major problems and questions that the person was going to ask you know around like weight budget uh, time you know these kinds of things and then when i don't know what to do and this is something that we always advise our sdrs to do if you don't know what to do say you don't know and just bring in the person and say you know i'll connect you directly with our ceo for example or our cto or somebody who's who really has the the capability to have that in-depth conversation with you yeah, I think that's probably the case in which you would need an engineer on staff to some extent. And maybe it's not like for HAE and SDR, you need one engineer. Maybe it's like every 10, 10 pairs, you need one engineer or something like that, where you would need the help in these companies. I actually don't know, right? I'm, I'm just curious about it. And uh, there's this woman, Diane Green, that built um, VMware, who talked about a sales engineer being paired with an SDR and... Um, an AE that made them grow in the in the rate in which they did. So it was just a curious thought. That's a great idea. Yeah, I think an interesting model, right? Um, especially for these like super technical products. But otherwise, I think you're right in that it's more more or less a understanding and pro training problem where you just make sure that your SDR and AE understands the problem space, the specs of your product, how it solves the problem in a meaningful way. I mean, one way that that uh, to counteract the or you know to to sort of speed up the training process is to hire within and you know from the industry. So um, you know, I, I know of a an architecture uh, SaaS platform, for example, um, and they hired architects to be their salespeople. And um, first of all, the the amount of trust that, that builds with people right away, and uh, and you know the the amount of of, uh, of sort of industry jargon that you can speak because you've just been in the industry for 10 years as as that role is uh, is is quite powerful so even in this market where you know again there are layoffs and there are all kinds of things happening but um sometimes just hiring from from that from the market that you want to target is um is a great way to to also get a sense of are we saying the right things are we being weird are we am i hitting the right tone uh, so yeah and also the technical know-how do you think that it's easier to teach the sales part than it is to teach the technical parts in that example. 
Oh, great question. I uh, and I think it, it really depends on uh, on the person. So, great coaches need to know how to respond to uh, to teams. And one person on a team might need a little bit of tough love, for example, and the other person you can't do that. It's just going to break their confidence completely. So, uh, the same thing goes for you know, is it technical know how or is it a sales thing? Um, and I think that different people have different blockers in place. I think giving somebody technical training is quite straightforward and it's it's quite objective. Like, can you answer this quiz at the end of the this uh, onboarding session? Do you know how this thing works? And the answer is probably yes. You go away and study it. I think everybody could be on board with that in you know a matter of weeks. On the sales side, if you don't have that that little feedback loop, you can get stuck pretty easily because there are all kinds of instead of uh, book-based sort of academic uh, barriers, uh, information barriers, there are things like confidence barriers and mindset barriers and uh, you know things like empathy barriers. So getting somebody a little bit better trained up on their sales skills is often, I think, a little bit more subtle, not necessarily more difficult, but you have to know how to listen to that person and understand you know how to pick out their strengths and weaknesses and then how to then coach them up. So um, they're both important, but... I think uh, some people struggle with the sales side a little bit more. The the rubric seems to be less defi def definable almost of like... It's a lot softer. It's one of these, yeah. I, I, I relate to that. I think that's like, that was like an area in which I, I would say I struggled at first trying to hire a salesperson because I was looking for my versions of those things. Or I'm like, oh, I, I do it this way, but doesn't mean it's the only way uh, to, to do it. And um, we've not found someone who's arguably better than I am, which is, which has been fun. Great. That's the goal. Yeah. I, I'd love to walk, like, I guess, hear, hear about the process part. Right. Um, and for context, I think I, I, you're right in that. I totally believe the process is much more important than anything else. Um, we talk about it internally where we want our job is to learn things, not to get the CAC goal that our clients want. Um, and in, in fact, we also tell our clients the same thing, right? I, the success metric is learning meaningful things at the right cadence, right? Um, yes. And ultimately that will, and it has so far for us, lead to success. It's just harder to wrap your mind around when one week it doesn't look good or like five <laughs> weeks in a row. It doesn't look good, but what we've done in those five weeks is that we have like crossed out so many things that we know now won't work. Um, so what, yeah, first of all, like what is the general pro process if you were to sort of simplify it? And then I want to talk about how you instill the process within the team and how you communicate it with the clients and making sure founders who want the sale yesterday understand that it takes, it takes time. Sure. And uh, I think that uh, let me walk you through, like, I guess what, what we do. And I, I think it's a it's a pretty healthy way to, to, to build. Um, and you'll probably, again, relate to a lot of this from the from the performance side uh, because it is iterative and um, loop based, I suppose. So we uh, we approach things from a three phase uh, structure. And what we will do is in phase one, we will sit down with the executive team and just get everything in one place to do with messaging, strategy, uh, target market, and sort of get a you know high level thing, but written down on one place so that everybody is, is clear. Often what we'll find is there's a, a lot of misalignment between different people because you just assume that you know we all say it the same way and then things get shifted, big differences happen. So it's a great exercise just to get alignment on all the key things that you should have in terms of the product knowledge, uh, the brand knowledge, and uh, you know essentially what you want to communicate to your, to your prospects and your customers. Then we uh, once we have everything in good shape, 
Um, oh, and we also do our, our roadmap uh, session where we look at the uh, your target revenue and then we work backwards to give you a plan to, uh, to build that team. Um, and then in phase two, we go out and we start to, uh, to build the team with you. And one way we do that, we're not traditional recruiters in a sense, but we will go out and find talent and uh, do a lot of the vetting and the filtering. So instead of just throwing a company, you know, here's a hundred salespeople, good luck. Uh, we will really kind of, we'll just send over one person. The, this is maybe two, possibly we've done three in the past, but you know, one or two people at a time and sort of say, look, this is, this is the best of the best. Yeah, and go for it or don't, but um, it's their choice in the end. But we will then sit and actually find the right people, handpick them, put them on the team. And like I said, we're building the first sales team uh, usually. So it's often just two or three people at a time. Um, and in that in that uh, second phase, we will then start to implement all the processes that we that we have in our toolkit. So it's like getting the first email campaign set up and running, getting their cold call script set up and running, and uh, basically getting some results back. And what we want to be doing, again, from the performance marketing side, you might uh, uh, feel good about this part, is uh, we're setting a baseline. We want to see what is working and what is what are the numbers telling us? What is the market telling us in reality and not just up here where we're in kind of la-la land? And uh, based on that, we will eventually move into phase three, which is just pure coaching. And um, over time, we will work with the executive team a little bit less directly and then um, with the individual reps more directly so that by the end of the, uh, you know, the, the six month process that we have, we will have a, um, everybody participating in essentially a coaching cycle where we're listening to calls, we're reviewing emails, we're, if somebody's stuck on something specific, we'll work through a difficult prospect with them. Uh, we'll look through a difficult profile, for example, and go through exercises, um, you know, basically every week we have daily sessions where we will uh, sit down with the team and, uh, for example, on Thursdays, I teach a copywriting session. Everybody comes to, to, to that from the team, but then we have an SDR session, an AE session, leadership session, and uh, we will give very uh, focused coaching feedback. So over time, the idea is we set the strategy, we recruit, and we, uh, we build the team and the processes uh, with the team and with the, the client, and then we will go off and coach the reps to hopefully make them all very good at their jobs. And we have almost... I think we might have had one or two people uh, leave their positions across all clients. For the most part, the people who we hire, they stay and they get pretty good at what they do. Interesting. So I'm hearing like two, there are two loops post sort of launch. There is one at the individual level. How can I make sure that this sales rep and this SDR and this AE is very good and we're getting better and better over time? That's a loop. And then there is like an overall, how is this messaging working overall across all these folks and how is it? sort of landing. So there is like a human loop and then there is like a more abstract, how are we messaging our product and our sales strategy to the market loop? And I think there's a, there's a third one and it's to do with, with uh, strategy or timing maybe. And uh, it's to do with basically is now the right time to shift into a different target market is, is now the right time to like add another persona. Cause usually these companies who we're working with have multiple tracks. And what we do is we sort of say, look, let's isolate one. Let's get, let's get one nailed down. And then uh, over time, you know, we're going to assume that we're going to get better at this one and then also, um, you know, add a new one. And the new one, if, you know, you can't just copy paste everything over and change the title uh, and just say it's all the same stuff. You know, the, uh, you know, you were talking about CTOs before. CTOs have very different concerns than a CEO, for example, or a CMO, or you know, um, a chief information security officer, for example, a, C a CISO. <laughs> They're the most fun because they are very laser focused on a certain set of metrics that nobody else really is in the same way. So, what's keeping that person up at night? Rebuild that strategy. Um, so, I think it's it's a uh, yeah, it's those three loops. I would say. 
So it's like a persona slash even like a market segment that you would ha- want to go through some loop and in, in iterating over or like adding them. It sounds like it's more around, hey, we're going to expand to this one now uh, because we figured this. Hopefully you figured the first one out and then you're kind of going on to the second, the third and so on and so forth. I mean, we're also there to you know be honest too. And if something is not working, maybe it's time to drop it. Maybe it's time to just say, look, I, we put, you know, we, we've done this with a couple thousand people here and it's not really working. It's time to drop this thing and, and move resources to a more effective place and greener pastures. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that that's always been like an area for me, I think that I was scared of doing outbound is what if I burn all the leads not knowing what I'm doing? Um, and I think I had to get over that. I was like the first thing I had to get over. And, and there's an interesting area of when you, as you mentioned earlier on, so much of it is like a mindset problem of how you think about it. And I'm super fortunate to have been in therapy effectively. And, and I did all of that in therapy. And I think a sales coach would have probably done the same for me of like, well, just send the first 10 out and get some data and then iterate on it. And, you know, I, if, funnily enough, I like got over that in therapy of like, maybe I should just send the first 10 emails out. And uh, I could have done, I've done some sales coaching, but not around these emotional problems. There's more around how to think about these things. Um, and how do you, yeah. How, how much are you thinking your therapists <laughs> than sales coach coaches? Oh, geez. That's, that's funny. I think, I think, uh, I'm very big into the performance world. I, I think this is this is an area that you know you mentioned mastery. I, I'm I'm fascinated by this by this uh, space. I, I grew up playing sports, so that's often my lens on the world. But most of the jobs that I've had in the past, especially when you look at either marketing or sales or whatever, I, I view it as a performance thing and a skill to be learned. And um, the way that I've read about good coaching is that it's it's and even good self coaching. It's about understanding the right time to come in with the right type of feedback. So, for example, if you've just had a rough sales call and you know you just got sworn at or the hung up, you may made to made to feel not so great about yourself. Now's not probably the right time to come on hard on yourself and be like, "Oh my God, what could I have done better?" Now's the time to probably just breathe a, a little, you know. So you've got to play that for yourself. Take a break. Be like, "Okay, it's okay. I'm going to take a walk. Take a, you know whatever. I'm not going to pay attention to it too much. Just it's the nurturing uh, side of things. Then you can come back later with a more rational kind of uh, X's and O's thing. Okay, next time I should do this." And just balance out between the nurturer and then the strict, uh, you know, kind of feedback, uh, uh, you know, the rational cold stuff. And I think that at some level, again, very much not a therapist here, but I have been, I have been through therapy. And I think that every, every good coach that I've ever had has some little element, yes, of helping you unlock some things for you. I hesitate to say therapy, but potentially at least self-coaching. And, and they give you the framework and the tools to help you, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the book uh, Deliberate Practice, or sorry, Peak Performance by Anders Ericsson. He's uh, the guy behind, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 rules, uh, 10,000 hours rule. Yeah. So uh, Ericsson is actually the person who came up with that, but it's not just 10,000 hours of of practice. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice makes you a master at something. And that means get a coach where you can get this person just say, so why do you think you did that? How did you feel about that? And ask these kind of open-ended questions to help people get, you know, challenge and think for, you know, spin the ideas around in their own head productively and healthily, and then give them, yes, at the right times, more direct feedback and say, hey, look, you know, I noticed that you did this. Maybe next time, try saying this instead. Here's why I think that's the case. Give them a logical, rational reason for that. And uh, and never just criticize. I mean, say, give them, give them an alternative thing to do to make it better. 
Um, so in that sense, yes, I think there's a little bit of therapy going on. There's a little bit of, of constructive uh, criticism maybe, but overall, it's really about understanding the person you're, you're looking at as, as a true part of your team, somebody who's there for the long run. And I feel like some, sometimes, especially entry-level salespeople get burned like this, but you know, replaceable, let me just get rid of them. And I think that most people are really coachable and really, um, you know, they show up with the right kind of energy dedication. They just need a little bit of help to unlock, you know, some behavioral stuff to get them a little bit more confident, um, get them speaking on the phone. And we just had our own SDR actually finish up his first month. And I mean, I turned around and told him, I was like, look, you know, your, your first month in, in, in the seat, you've made more calls to customers than most founders ever do. That's pretty powerful. So let's keep going with this. Little things like that, I think, are, are very important to always keep it positive, but also realistic. And uh, that's why we also have a very strong focus on numbers and data. And we always come back, uh, our SDRs uh, and all the client SDRs too, uh, they track their activities every single day. And we get them to write it down manually because, you know, yes, you can find all that stuff in any tool. It's all automated, but put it down manually. You'll, you will see, you know, you'll, again, feedback loops. I keep saying that, but I, you create your own feedback loops that way. Yeah, there's an interesting thing. I was talking to a friend over the weekend who's trying to get really good at ops. Um, and she was saying, oh, you know, my, my CEO is asking for all this, like, information about activities um, and task management and getting updates on things. And so my immediate thought was, oh, why don't you just expose your internal notes? And she didn't have the internal notes. And so we, I started talking about rituals. You got to build your own internal structure on how to do things and how to care about things. So I want you to write out all the things for yourself first. Um, and the, the symptom is that you're not doing it. So then they're not finding out about it, mostly because you don't have your own internal structure. So that sounds super familiar. Um, and this is how like, I think everyone needs to get good at ops is building in your own internal loops um, that coincides with what the company and what the organization's loops are like. Um, and then so you can fall into it, but it's, it's easier said than done. Um, and it sounds like this coaching that you guys do is just this human aspect of, hey, we're just going to think of you. And, you know, I generally used to dislike the sports analogies, but as, because I did not grow up playing sports. So I actually don't know what it's like to be coached well from, from, a, from a sports coach. And as I've grown older and spoken to people who keep drawing the analogies and I've gotten dig, dig, dug into it, it sounds like what you're talking about. It's like, hey, I'm basically helping you like regulate better um, because I am noticing things over a longer time period as an outsider. And it's super helpful, right? Um, that, that's super cool. So you have these like three different loops going on. Some of it is, I guess, because there is like the performance aspect of it. There was a very clear indicator of failure and success. Um, and you're saying that, you know, how, when do you say this is not working out to someone? Yeah, that's that's a great uh, again a great question. It's a tough one, and it's it's one where it it will come up inevitably. It it will come up, and um, I think you've got to look back at that tracking sheet. I think that's one of the key indicators is if somebody is is dropping the ball on some of their self tracking. That's often a, a sort of an indicator that something's there, there's something up, and either oh I'm too good for it, I don't need to do that kind of stuff. Okay, maybe that happens sometimes, but often often what um and that's still the wrong answer by the way, but. Um, Often case, I think it frustrations, uh, disillusionment, distraction, 
uh, people who just don't want to be at that job. And the things that start to fall away first is, you know, this this data entry, this daily tracking sort of thing. And the people who are invested in it, on the other hand, they show up to things. And um, so it's not that you're, for example, with, with Voris, you're not obligated to come to our daily coaching sessions and whatnot. But um, it's it's something where the people who are dedicated, yes, they do show up for their for their stuff and they show up ready and they show up, you know, once somebody stops working on themselves and just starts showing up to the job, I think that's a little bit of a danger in any sort of performance-based skill. Uh, that could be true for, again, I go back to the restaurant stuff. Somebody's just going through the motions, they don't really want to be there. And if somebody is actually, you know, working and showing a chef who is constantly coming up with new dishes and whatnot, that's a great way to, to, to see there's some sort of dedication, a willingness to throw ideas at the wall and be told, no, they don't work, but keep on coming back. And once you lose that, I think it's a, it's a, it's not necessarily totally black and white, but um, I think that's, that's one of the indicators to me where I get a little bit nervous if I see somebody not reporting back on the very basics of what they're doing. Yeah. And it, it, I think that the way like the, the thought came up, as you said, that is this, you're looking for some form of consistency because that's a, a big portion of how this thing works is not just showing up, but being in the same frame of mind constantly throughout your day. So then you're applying all the learnings that you've had before. Um, one part of this thing I'm curious about, how much do you ask people to like live healthy lives? Because it, at least to me, a huge indicator for how good I am at being ritualistic and following what I know would work if I follow it is, am I sleeping well? Am I eating well? Um, and is my personal life in a stable state? Like, do you find that that's part of your job as sales managers um, or just Absolutely. generally managers? And how, how deep do you go there? How do you talk about it even? Yeah, I think it's it's something. It's also a wider thing in the sales world that is thankfully being spoken about more now. And it's um, it's one where it's you know I think if you rewind even ten years ago, I was going to say twenty or thirty, but even just ten years ago, maybe even five years ago, um, it, it's it, a lot of it is an unhealthy culture where it's sort of saying you got to kind of burn through uh, burn out, but you got to kind of burn through all your reserves to just be showing up every day and do more and do more and do more and get paid more and pay, get paid more and get. And that kind of stuff is is obviously you know it's it's not sustainable it's not healthy and it's, it's not it's not enjoyable to be around um, I think so if um, if you're building that type of an organization there's there's many organizations out there that do this unfortunately but I think that one way to make it a little bit um, to avoid that is in the community I mentioned that our our training is is a community first platform and the reason that we do that is that we can hold regular events from outsiders who will come in and talk about, for example, mental health or come in and talk about how to set up, you know, you mentioned bedtime routine. We haven't done that yet, but I think sleep is a huge part of, uh, of performance uh, for literally anything that you do. So um, we are not necessarily always the experts. I will bring it up as, as often as I can um, about basically like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I mean, I'll often just have one-on-ones with people. I'm just sort of say, you know, is everything okay? Are are you doing okay? And if, <clears throat> excuse me, if they're not, or if you know, either physically sick or feeling a little bit out of it, on our own team, we will tell them, take take the day off, relax, just get yourself right. Don't. There's no pressure here to be. Uh, again, we're not looking at necessarily at like you have to be picking up the phone like this, like you know, a, a robot. Um, 
but it's one that I think we could probably get even better at. And I think that the way there that I'm most excited about is, is getting more experts in who are now talking about this directly to salespeople. Um, and we're, we do that through our community, but also like if, if we do, you know, webinars in the future, we have somebody coming in on, I believe, end of August who will be, uh, who's there to talk about mindset and, you know, how to sustain a, a positive and healthy one without, without driving yourself crazy. Uh, and he's really good at what he does. I'm, I'm really excited to, to speak with him. Yeah, that's super cool. That makes a lot of sense, especially because it does really feel like a high performance sport. Um, and sales does to me. I, I think um, I'm in an interesting way, super grateful to have learned how to do it because I had to then go back and say, oh, you know, my old, like, let's say, you know, if I'm using Paul Graham sort of words of the maker schedule that I had and, and for context, I'm an engineer. So I, I, most of my career was sleeping super late, waking up late. Um, and going through that schedule. And then I've completely shifted over the last two years where I'm waking up automatically without an alarm. In fact, if I'm waking up with an alarm, I consider that to be a bad day um, because I've already ruined my, my rhythm. Um, and I like have a shutdown sequence after a certain hour during the works. Like I'm super methodical because I've learned that that's what works in my role as a as a growth person, effectively. Um, although I do run our engineering team, but um, I don't code into the into the night anymore. Um, it's just like I've had to learn how to do that and fit it in uh, in the day. Um, do you have a specific sort of ritual that you do around journaling or around that kind of that kind of um, you know a sort of self examination? Yeah, I have a a weekly. So there's there's two forms of journaling I do. I, I have a work journal uh, that's once a week. I do that on Monday mornings. And then I have what I call my emotional journal. Um, and that happens more sporadically, but usually at least once a week, if not more. Um, and it's mostly around like there is acute problems that I want to think about. So then I'll, I'll, I'll jump into it. Um, and then I have therapy once a week and, and I um, climb every day. And that's kind of my like resetting sort of mode where after work, I climb for an hour. Um, sometimes not the whole hour I've learned because I'm trying to also get good at climbing. And, and the thing that happens if you climb every day is that your muscles are always sore, so you can't actually get better at it. So I've been stuck in the same state for months. Um, and talking about mastery, right? You have to be comfortable with that. But the second thing is I have to actually take breaks. Um, but it is a super helpful sort of meditative thing to do. And I do it solo. I don't do it with, with other people. I don't like talking at the climbing gym where a lot of people want to talk to me. I'm like, sorry, I'm not, I'm not here for that. <laughs> That's great. I mean, isn't it funny how many things are analogous here? Like when, when we're talking about the idea of skill development or of uh, life improvement or in terms of just getting healthier, even getting healthy, these are holistic things with many moving parts. And you've got to be able to learn and develop your own kind of routines around this. So, you know, one thing that we did is we actually published a, an SDR journal, like we called it the SDR Mastery Journal, where, yes, it is about tracking your, your hard numbers for the activities that day. But then every day there's a space to kind of come in and be like, okay, Blank page, how do I feel? Just a dear diary section. How do I, how did I feel about today? Just open-ended. And then we finished that off with saying, okay, name one strong thing that you did that day and one weak thing. And then the goal for tomorrow is just to address that weak thing. So again, we, we create these little loops to, to go, uh, you know, uh, to, to keep somebody just always working on something that's digestibly actionable and something that they can work on, but also balance out a few of the other things, hopefully, uh, to de-stress and vent and 
I mean, I, I have a narcolepsy. I have, I have a sleep disorder called narcolepsy, and it's um, it, for me one of the you know biggest levers that I ever pulled was was getting my sleep in better shape. Um, but for other people, you know, it's it's a struggle with being told no at some point. And then also you're a human being, you change over time. So I think having these structures in place where you're able to self-examine in a, in a healthy way, you know, six months down the road, you might have a different challenge. A year down the road, you might have a different challenge. That's part of the nature of, of human growth. Um, so I think these things are very important for, like, like you said, any sort of performance skill, but probably just life in general too, to be totally honest, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I, I got some pushback from my same friend I was talking about ops with, and she was saying, oh, that feels like very rigid in the way you run your life. And I think there is like a, there was some, some to that. There is like probably some virtue around being very spontaneous. Uh, but what it gives me is this ability to be absolutely and completely present when I'm not at work. There is so much structure running around me. And the way I like conduct myself at work and how my own household runs that when I'm at like a dinner with friends, there is no other like loop running. Oh, you know, did I remember to like send this email out or did that thing happen? None of that is happening. There is, there's no noise. I am just there. Right. So, um, I think that was the reasoning that that's actually what I used in order to say, I need to change because I'm not present after hours. Um, and it was something I also saw in my father because he was an, also an entrepreneur growing up. He wasn't really able to be fully present after he would come back from work. And most of the conversations were around work um, for him because of that, because he wasn't able to disconnect. And it's something I, uh, you know, my mother would always tell me for years on like, you got to stop working and she'd call me at like eight and I'd be at the office or something. She's like, why are you at the office? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I completely relate to this and, and it's unfortunately way easier said than done. Um, and when I was telling her, it took me years to get to this state. You know, I, I say, I would say I've been attempting to get to this rhythm for six years and succeeded the last two years. Right. So four years of working on like on, on, on it. And then the last couple of years I've been basically on it, um, very well. Um, but it's an, it's an interesting problem. And, you know, what we do and, and I wonder, so you, you're hosting these events where people are coming in and, and there is now like processes in which you're building mastery components in, in your organization. Are there philosophical conversations you're having with your team? Is there like, do you ask them to read some sort of like mastery book? Uh, what are the other things you're doing there? Yes, uh, all the time. I mean, we're, I think as a team, we're pretty, pretty active readers, um, both deep and wide, uh, depending on who you're speaking to at the right time. But uh, so one thing that we've done in the past, yes, is to, is to um, actually our last giveaway was all about, was a book-based giveaway, all the best sales books that ourselves and then several other teams from different um, different software companies had chosen. Um, and, you know, with each book came a little bit of a, a uh, you know, reasons why. Um, so we don't have a, a book club technically yet, but I, it's something that I have been thinking about in, installing. Um, but instead, so far, what we've been doing is uh, essentially training with uh, references to specific books to read. So for example, um, I, I will occasionally dip into a client's marketing team to say hello. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I, I did with one team was to turn them on to uh, Jobs to be Done, the Jobs to be Done handbook. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, so... Little things like that where it's like, okay, let's take a practical book uh, or uh, the mom test and sort of uh, 
read it together and, you know, tell me your, shoot me your takeaways at the, uh, you know, at the end of the month. And then we'll have a little conversation about that, for example. On a wider philosophical level, we do, um, we do a, a ton of, um, again, different angles here. Number one would be goal setting sessions. So we do those all the time and sort of ask, why are you setting these types of goals? You know, just think about the goal that you're, 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 you know, your bigger why and, um, and really challenge yourself on it. And we'll work, you know, through a structured process with people at every level of the team on these goal setting days every month. Um, and then in a, internally, just at Voris, we're constantly having conversations, little arguments sometimes, little things about, you know, where we want to be as, as, as a team. But, um, the philosophical part of it is probably one of the biggest things. You know, where do we fall in this in this uh, in this matrix of uh, of companies out there telling you to go, you know, cold call? And um, it's one where it's very it's a shifting market. And I think you have to consistently look at it as such. It's always going to be shifting. So if you are able to approach this as something where we're trying to empower people to really be the best versions of themselves, and I really mean that, and truly serve their customers. And again, I really mean that. Then from there, all other philosophicals, uh, philosophical ideas of the sort of, you know, how we get there become almost secondary to me. And as long as we're getting people to really buy into those two concepts of I'm going to be better and then I'm also going to serve my customers the best possible way, how we get there is just, you know, then maybe a little bit about, you know, it becomes pick your, pick your, your topic of the day and we can talk from that point to anywhere. Yeah, I like that a lot. And it's, uh, you know, because there's, you know, what is that phrase? There's many ways to skin a cat, which I don't understand. Why would you want to skin a cat? But um, it falls within this this point of like, there's definitely different ways, like, you know, climbing and the way I journal and all this sort of stuff is just one format. Uh, my partner is an Ashtangi and she does like an hour of yoga every day, for instance, and uh, super similar mastery mindset. Um, and it works for her because it's super meditative at the same time. Same with climbing for me. It's super meditative. And for some reason, I, I used to do Vipassana, but combining the physical aspect just made it better for me. Um, and so I guess like the, let's talk about competition because there is some of this aspect of like people be, be wanting to become masters of their craft obviously makes it such that they can become better over time and, and, and get the job done in the way that is possible. But there is like other levers at your disposal. And it feels like to me, competition is at least like a very common one used in sales teams. So given your mindset of mastery, how do you fit that in? Do you fit that in at all? Uh, do you use it mostly as comparison tools to say, Hey, this is what's possible. What is the, messaging approach behind competition in teams? Yeah, that's, again, I love this question because it's, it's very much what stuff that we care about deeply. I think that competition as a, as, a, as a thing, as a word, as an idea by itself is neither negative nor positive. It's a neutral concept. It's just, it is, it is, it is there. I think it comes back to competition within culture. And if you have a culture that is driven towards, it's a zero sum game, it's cutthroat, it's me versus everybody else, it's either I get paid or, or the other person, and you know, we never share stuff, then by nature, competition will be extremely unhealthy. And it'll just become this very, you know, kind of caustic thing where people are just out to just, you know, I'll, I'll just show up, try to be better and just hide my stuff from everybody else. Whereas if you have a positive team culture, and you're really there to sort of say like, look, if I do better, you do better and let me help you. And let me come to you with my questions because I know you're, you're really good at this and, and I'm really good at this. Let's, let's, have a, let's have a conversation. 
when we have teams that build a culture like that, that's open, that's question-based, that's collaborative, as you know, I mentioned before, with even the marketing teams coming in with sales, when you build a collaborative team culture, then competition becomes this beautiful driving force to become better as a, as a group. And that's where, you know, the best teams that I can think of, and I'm, I'm, I can think of at least five off the top of my head, where I know that they will actively ask each other for help first before going to leadership and before coming to us. And they, were, they will go directly and sort of say, hey, you know what? Mike has the best CTAs. I don't know. I love his CTAs. People always get, get you know, uh, talk about how he closes off his emails and they always reply. I want to, they'll go to Mike because <laughs> Mike has shared his stuff. And the way that you get there, I think, is the way you can foster this very directly by leadership. We try to do this as well. But you also do this by creating routines for people. So it's not, sharing just doesn't naturally happen by itself magically. But if you say, hey, look, folks, every Friday, let's show up and have a little bit of conversation together. And let's grab, what was your best email this week? Let's just look at them. And out of this session, let's grab the best email from the session and sort of like a reward again. Let's go back to Mike for a second there, right? And say, hey, uh, Mike's was the best. This is going to get saved and people in the future are going to come. And it's even going to get you know put into our onboarding process and our training process. And when you're when you are onboarded onto a team where you are learning directly from other people on the team, in addition to training methodology, in addition to your leadership, that sort of creates the expectation that, hey, I can contribute my best stuff. I can learn from other people here. And then honestly, I, I don't see competition being even an issue because SDRs and AEs, especially, they are, the better the conversation that an SDR starts, the easier an AE's life is going to be. The better an AE does to sort of follow up and do a tiny bit of customer service by checking in on the customer once they become a paying uh, paying customer, um, you know that little bit, that little touch will do wonders for retention and for you know referrals. So I think collaborative, positive culture is something that's a very kind of vague, fluffy term, but there are ways to build it, and it's one where if you do it right, that's where competition becomes a, a wanted asset almost. Yeah, I love that look. I think I. Personally, historically thought of competition as just generally negative. Uh, but again, I think it goes back to not having been part of sports teams that also see it as super fun and um, additive as opposed to something that be negative for you. Um, and now I have, I, I also think you need, you need to learn how to have internal competition. And then the moment you have internal competition, then it, it can be very fun and easy with other people. Um, and the cultural aspect, I think, is like probably the biggest lever you have access to as, as a founder or leader. Um, the area in which uh, I'm curious about, and I, I do want to get into this other part in a second, which is um, marketing teams and, and organizational design when it comes to those two. But the last question I have for you is a lot of what we talked about just now is limited on some prerequisite almost, which is you need to, as an individual who's trying to get better at doing what they do, to be beyond a certain level of like mental ability or out of, you know, what people commonly call Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, which by the way is not, an is not a hierarchy if you read Maslow, <laughs> but that was like completely created by management um, books. but. Yeah, it's a funny one, but it, it does make, it's the easiest way to convey what he was talking about. Um, but the point is that you have all these needs that have nothing to, like the, if you don't have those met and to some extent, none of what we just talked about matters. Like you're just not gonna be able to have this loop in your mind of improving or even, it's not that you're not able to improve maybe, it's 
the ultimate thing that you're looking for, and correct me if I'm wrong, and this is what we look for, is this internal fire for actualization. Like I'm trying to become the best version of who I am today and who I want to become. And that usually comes from within. So it's, it's actually, we don't have to do much when you have that already. We can do some things in terms of giving you the tools to get better at that and, 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 and all of that. But it comes so much of it is, is from the inside and, and in order to get there, and at least in my opinion, and likely most psychologists' opinion, and I may be wrong about that, um, my personal experience rather, is that I had to get over those things to be in this state. Um, and so much of it was around like, oh, I, I maybe need a partner that I feel like safe with. I need to have better relationships with my friends and my family. And it took me years to fix those first. Then I felt like I was able to work on this and, and and succeed at work. Um, I may be wrong about that, right? There's probably, I know plenty of founder friends even who are like low EQ, but highly successful at doing what they're doing. So there, there's, there's again, like many different ways to skin a cat, but I feel like mastery, I don't know. I may be wrong about this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I largely agree with you. I think that, that finding, um, finding people who are, who are ambitious and passionate and driven and want to get better at what they do. And in, it, we obviously want to find those people. And we do a pretty good job of, 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 I think, finding them for our clients. But I don't think we should limit ourselves to saying necessarily that you have to have this prerequisite of a certain level of, of call it what you want, balance, health, uh, even confidence. I, I'm not sure what the right term is for that. But you, you don't necessarily have, it's hard to define that somewhere. Um, but I think that, Again, going back to culture, if you really truly build an amazing team, and I'm uh, let me let me be extreme for a second here, maybe exaggerate just for the for the sake of it, but if if you were to look at teams that are just an incredible environment to be around, where you show up, let's say again in a neutral state, and you're saying, okay, I'm here to do my job, and you walk into the room, and you genuinely walk into a room of people walking up to you and being like, Nemo, what up? Welcome, day one, let's go, baby, this is going to be great. And every day, they're just constantly high energy. They're constantly there. It's difficult for you not to be high energy like them. This is just a basic thing about just elevating yourself from an, from an energy perspective. But then if you see people working hard to better themselves and sort of, and you see, you know, your sales manager might kind of be like, hey, Mike, what did you do with that CTA? I, I want to start doing this. Or you, you sort of see this in front of you with essentially the, the experienced people on your team leading by example. It is very difficult for the the new person to not pick up those habits, in my opinion. And it's, um, well, culture is a very vague and difficult thing. It's ethereal. It slips through your fingers sometimes. But if you can build that by hiring the right kinds of people to, uh, well, I think culture is very much top down uh, at the beginning in, in a lot of startups because it's literally the founder, right? And if you can create that, it's a, it's a roundabout way of me saying, I think the founders can often do a great job of creating wonderful culture for that first one or two people. And then those first one or two people can turn around. And if, if they're you know, empowered the right way can really create an amazing experience for the, for the next round of people to come in. And I think that's the special thing about startups, especially the very early stage ones where, yeah, I mean, we don't have to hire anybody, but we, we could get in somebody with a little bit of wants to put their mark on something. So I, I agree with you that, yes, you should be looking for people who are already as far advanced on that fake pyramid, maybe, uh, the, you know, the, the Maslow thing. But, um, but it, for the most part, I think that I would like to think anyway, I would like to view most people as coachable to the point of, wait a minute, I can just, 
I don't have to be, I don't have to be sarcastic and kind of like goofy about this stuff. I, I can just show up and just be stupidly happy about the fact that it's a Monday, you know, like, okay, the, interesting. You know, if I, we have a thing about also when, when we do live uh, trainings with, with, uh, with, with companies, we'll go around, we'll get everybody to stand up. We'll get everybody to just kind of be physically in the right space, get everybody in the right, teach them little routines to again, protect yourself mentally after something bad, put yourself into a good state in, in, in front of something good. And then also, I think that's that sort of surface level stuff for for that are, it's important, but it's surface level. It can it can disappear quickly, but then train them on how to do this for themselves later. Like at the end of the day, before you go to bed, are you are you um, are you happy? Um, I remember I, I interviewed a, a sports psychologist. She was the uh, the coach of the U.S. women's indoor cycling team and a former gold medalist herself. And uh, I asked her all these questions about metrics, about you know looking for you know are you weighing your athletes every day? <laughs> are you doing all this kind of crazy stuff? She's like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Um, I only asked them one question. And I was like, no way. What, what? And she, and she's like, yeah. So I only asked them, can you sit in a room with yourself in silence for 15 minutes? And I, it was the first time, this was maybe going back about seven years ago, but it was the first time that I had this like switch go off in my head about this type of stuff. And I, I up until that point, I'd been very much, you know, like you describe yourself early on of just, you know, working the late nights and then killing yourself just to be productive and, um, after that conversation with her, I kind of reassessed a lot about how I was going about my own, uh, my own stuff, and uh, and I think I see this translate over to um, to teams as well. Yeah, I mean, first of all, that question is an amazing question. Um, the fifteen minutes of silence—it's a powerful one. What it, what if I were to repeat back what you just said to me, which I really liked, which is it sounds like you are saying that you can create a culture, an environment such that even if I haven't reached that level of wanting self-actualization in the way that I described earlier, um, the environment is positive enough that you can find some form of joy in the process of begging, getting better at what your job is. Let me, let me frame it in another way too. Like, I mean, um, Think about yourself. I mean, I'm projecting here because I'm thinking about myself here, but think of ourselves at, let's say, the age of 20 or 22 or 23. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I, you know, I, I was very much, you know, okay, entrepreneur track and, you know, I'm going to build a business and I'm going to do all this kind of stuff, right? And it's um, in, in most of the old school training, none of this is really talked about. So it's, it's but increasingly it is, which is great. But if I came into an organization at the age of 23, not knowing stuff, but being open and being generally positive and, and ambitious, and I was given structure around me by people 10 years, you know, 20 years uh, more advanced than I was, um, I think that, yes, that kind of stuff will absolutely shape how I start to behave, how I start to think, how I start to actually genuinely feel about my job. And, um, and if it's also, it's a, it's a two-edged, uh, double-edged sword there. If it's not there, if that structure is not there, if that culture is not there, I will very quickly learn to do all the bad things very quickly too, because people around me just don't care, don't talk to each other, don't smile. <laughs> so it's, uh, these are things that can be manufactured, but I would argue that, that if you give the majority of positive young people with energy, that kind of framework to, to operate within um, and show them why it's important, a lot of people would just be be happier at their at, at their jobs and more successful in general. And there's it's almost like a gift to your to those people because there's this thing called job imprinting. I don't know if you've No, I've never heard that term. Sets the stage for your whole career in that it imprints what you expect from 
people around you, the teams around you, um, and how things are meant to be. Um, there was like a HBR study a couple of years ago um, around it. And I remember reading it and thinking, wow, I'm, yeah, I can see how much my first job uh, affected how I built things later on as an entrepreneur. Um, uh, but I only had like a real job for six months before my first entrepreneurial sort of endeavor. But still, e even then, uh, there was a lot of imprinting. Um, before we wrap up, let's let's go. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great. Yeah, it sounds like we have decently overlapping histories or, or journeys. Um, what is your so talking about this culture of like trying to make sure we're all collaborative and there's avoiding internal competition in the negative way. Marketing teams, obviously, to some extent, are involved or even responsible for some of the leads that get generated for a sales staff. Um, there's two questions I have for you. One is, how do you think the org structure should be done? Like, is there a VP of sales and a VP of marketing or a chief revenue officer that like both of the teams report to like what what are your favorite org structures there um and then if you were to sort of sum up like an a, an approach or a philosophy that the teams should have collaborating what is like the, the your favorite one there i think one one common issue I, i'll come back to the org structure in a second but i think one of the most common things that i ask for whenever um whenever a team is is onboarded with us is that um, if there's an existing sales team, let's assign somebody to own the uh, the copy. Who's who's going to be responsible on the team to be writing either the emails or the call scripts or the whatever? So we will hand them templates. We will often write with them. But it's very important to have somebody on the team who's able to say, "Okay, I I understand what we're trying to do here. I have the skills, you know, to some degree to to be able to to write this stuff up." The reason that's important is that if that person is not there, then essentially the sales team is being handed material from somebody else who does not, who never talks to customers. And that could be the CEO or that could be the marketing team. Don't mean that you guys never speak to customers, but not in the same way in terms of like literally calling them up and just having hundreds of conversations every month, um, you know, thousands even. And I think that's the biggest flaw that I see in a lot of the structures is that often when a marketing person um, when a marketer, when a copywriter from the marketing team writes email copy, they're writing marketing emails and then giving them to a sales team and saying, good luck. And it just doesn't work the same way because we're we're doing the same general thing and just trying to make make a closer relationship with the, with the customer. But we have a specific goal that's a lot more clear than the marketing team. The marketing team has just a bigger cycle, can send endless you know touches to somebody. Um, so it's okay. I think the average is something like 37 touches on, on the marketing side before a conversion. So on, uh, on the sales side, we don't have that luxury. We have you know, a couple of shots. And so yes, you have to be more direct, but you have to have somebody who's able to, able to actually give the team, the rest of the team, the right material. Um, so that's number one. I look for somebody to actually own that. Uh, and it could be an SDR, it could be an AE. I don't really care as long as it's one person to then consistently build better and better material in place. At a bigger picture, um, how to structure the orgs, this shifts as a company scales. Right, so if you have just literally a handful of people, five people on your on your company, it's difficult to say, you know, we need now a VP of sales, and we need, you know, a, a, a CMO, and we need all these different people to then, you know, be be the leaders of of teams when you just have a handful of, of people. Um, 
So in that sense, I would say that <laughs> this is going to be a little bit of a non-answer, but bear with me. Basically, whoever is heading up the marketing department and whoever is heading up the sales department should at some point be different people and be reporting to the company leadership separately. And then should they be collaborating? Absolutely. Should they be meeting with each other? Absolutely. But at some point, I see it as a sort of a tree that goes up in you know <laughs> two separate ways, but through one, one person on each side and then goes back to leadership. Is that enough of an answer? Yeah, I think that that makes sense to me. I think the collaboration part is just the, the part that it makes is, is hard to do. But um, I found it that some teams that don't have like if there was like a VP marketing and a VP, you know, sales, let's say, but they go into not to the CEO, but there is like another person whose job is to bring on overall revenue. So like a chief revenue officer of sort. Yeah to be a little bit more performant because there is that one person who is ultimately responsible for the thing, um, for the bottom line of the business and, um, or like the top line of business rather. And so they're, they're making sure they're ensuring some level of collaboration, collaboration more than when there's two VPs and they're kind of fighting for resources with, with a CEO. Um, but that may, I don't have enough data points to tell you that that's the right move either. No, I, I think it's the bigger, the bigger an organization gets, the more likely that kind of structure is necessary, I think. Um, whereas if you're, if you're really in kind of like, let's say, I don't know, this is again, not a great barometer, but like a series A-ish, you know, uh, give or take maybe series A, series B, pre-seed, so, you know, or seed capital, um, something around there, maybe you're not quite big enough to have the full-blown team built out with hundreds of salespeople and you know, multiple uh, levels of leadership. Whereas if, if you're, you know, if you're something under 20 people, um, I doubt you need to have the same level of, of, of management structure on top of everybody, basically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. And this was super fun. Um, I'm excited to get to know more. Your, yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, you got it. Great talking to you. I don't know about you, but I feel like I could go and build a sales team just by talking with Dan. His insight and strategies really set the bar high. Thank you for listening to this episode and to all of our other episodes we've released. Hint, we have 10 others to binge. Hit that follow and subscribe button to get each episode first. All right, until next time.